From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Mitch Pacwa. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Wednesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we'd love to hear from you. The phone number is 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still like for you to be part of the program. Your phone number is 1-205-271-2985. And if you are outside of the United States and Canada, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. My uh, Charles Beery, excuse me, is our celebrity producer today. Uh, Matt Gubensky screening your phone calls and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the man who needs no introduction, but he does need a post-operative boot to support his broken leg. Father Mitch Pacwa, how are you? Fine. Yes, the boot is fine. Though I didn't have an operation. There was no operation, just But that's just, a boot. that's just what they call it. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. Well, I want more accuracy. Yeah, well, Speaking of which. Truth in advertising. Should, should we d- deal with... Uh, this call, or should we go right no, to... No, no, emails, emails. Emails first. Email right. segment one. Hold on to that question, Jamie. Um, first, uh, Steve has a question about uh, spiritual communion, that I understand that receiving communion in person requires us to be in the grace of God. Um, no mortal sins, and at the beginning of Mass, we ask forgiveness of our venial sins. If we are if we are or at the time of the church being closed during COVID or in the state of mortal sin, how am I to interpret the act of receiving spiritual communion? Is this more of a blessing or to understand it as receiving the body and blood of Christ? Thank you, Stephen. It's more along the lines of a blessing or sacramental. It's uh, asking for uh, communion. It's uh, something that is would be a very good thing to prepare you for confession. Um, you know, if you're in the state of mortal sin, uh, but it's uh, it's it's not the the sacrament, and it is um, you know very much um, you know uh, uh, the kind of thing that you, um, you know, are, are uh, making it yeah more seeking a blessing. That'd be much more like that. Um, and then Janine in Independence, Missouri says, "Is it okay to say Happy Diwali to our to my friends and coworkers from India?" This is a big Indian uh, celebration. I've done this in the past, and I'm wondering whether it or not it's okay since uh, since that holiday is coming up soon in India. 
Also, uh, what about other non-Christian holidays like wishing somebody happy Hanukkah if they're Jewish or happy Al-Aid uh, for someone who is Muslim? Janine, you know, the the celebration of Diwali is uh, something I don't uh, have a lot of background in. I uh, think it is something... Uh, it, it has to do with celebrating one of the gods of India. Someone who knows more about this can can say. Um, and here's where it'd be, um, you know, uh, you can give somebody best wishes. Um, if it is more connected with uh, worshiping another god, that would be a little bit of a compromise for us. We can wish, again, wish people a happy holiday. That's a, that'd be a good example of wishing happy holidays. Just as uh, Jewish people often wish Christians uh, happy holidays, though I can certainly remember in the past a lot of Jewish uh, people who were in the media uh, on television, radio, uh, would wish Merry Christmas, and they felt no difficulty. Um, but uh, in the case of Happy Hanukkah, uh, it's the same Lord God, you know, that, and even with uh, wishing people uh, the Al-Aid, uh, the, the celebration at the end of Ramadan, they still worship the, the one God. You know, again, we disagree with how they worship, but it's the same God who of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, that we share and we believe. Um, and so it, it's not a, a compromise there. But uh, you can certainly wish your Hindu neighbors uh, the best, you know, for them. And, you know, ha- again, happy holidays. Um I just don't know quite enough about uh, whether this is specifically connected with worship of another god. That would be the the difficulty for us morally. Okay. Then um, John in Arlington, Virginia, said, I recently got into a discussion with a rabbi about Adam and Eve. He said, according to oral Jewish tradition based on Genesis, God created both genders in one body, so Adam at first had both male and female organs, but wanted a separate mate like all the other creatures. He pointed to Genesis 1.26 in the image of, of God, he created him, referring to Adam, male and female created them, meaning both genders together. When I mentioned this to a friend who's Greek Orthodox priest. Uh, They said they have a similar tradition based on the Septuagint referring to Adam as anthropos, um, uh, humankind, in Genesis 2, up until Eve is created. He thinks this is found in the early fathers like Origen and Tertullian, the point being to show a unity and diversity in man from the beginning as in the Trinity. If we are made in the image and likeness of God, there's a unity and diversity in our very being, our origin prior to being separated as man and woman. I've never heard this before, and I find it rather uncomfortable, especially in light of the gender confusion out there. I wonder if 
Father Mitch can help shed light on it. Actually, John, I'm uh, very unfamiliar with those uh, propositions. You know, it, when I've read uh, the Midrash Rabbah, the, the, uh, which is the Midrash on Genesis um, in, in Jewish literature, I've not come across that. Um, and it certainly is not something that I know of in uh, defined doctrine. That was not something that the Greek Orthodox have decreed as a dogma or doctrine, and uh, it's not in any of the councils. So um, it's certainly not in our tradition, and um, uh, I suspect that it may that that the early fathers may have gotten that from some of the rabbis of their time, but I am not uh, uh, aware of that as being anything that would be um, part of us uh, or our theology. So I I wouldn't uh, I, I've never considered taking such a thing very seriously. Um, and then uh, from Coach Rails, uh, I was just wondering what you thought of David Torkington saying that the discernment of spirits by St. Ignatius of Loyola are anthropocentric, that means human-centered, as opposed to theocentric and based on uh, humanism, not contemplative prayer. I find that hard to believe, having done the spiritual exercises before the religious or uh, with the religious order, Mila's Christi. Um, you know, frankly, Coach, uh, I don't think of this as centered on humanity at all. The whole purpose of the discernment of spirits is to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing because we want to follow God's will. It's not about uh, being centered on a human being or various human beings. It is um, uh, something that is, uh, you know, you know, trying to center us on God and His holy will. So I, I don't know why Torkington would assume that. It's not from humanism, uh, but from the spiritual experience on mysticism of St. Ignatius. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Jamie in Tennessee, Diane in Colorado, and we've got time for your calls as well. It's Open Line Wednesday with Father Mitch. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you enjoy EWTN Bookmark Brief with our president and COO, Doug Keck, you can receive weekly emails including a short video blog. It features the author, who gives a short synopsis of their own work in their own words. And uh, to get that, just visit EWTN.com and click 
on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open phone lines at 833-288-3986. First up today is Jamie in Tennessee watching us on YouTube today. Jamie, thank you so much for holding. You're on with Father Mitch. Hello, Father Mitch. Thank you so much for taking my call. How my, are you? My pleasure, ma'am. What's what's up? Well, I was watching your program, Scripture and Tradition, yesterday. And uh-huh. towards the end, there, there was a question, and the response was something about the Roman Emperor Caligula. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think I misunderstood it, but that he had put a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, in what? Did he, did yeah. He yeah, what he had done is he had a statue of himself sent to the Holy Land. To to then it was it was called Palestine, the the province of Palestine, and Judea, and uh, it was sent there, and Jews laid down on the road in front of it to prevent it from coming. And the uh, officer in charge then said, uh, you know, uh, I was summarizing something because remember the question was about the um, uh, the the, desol- the, the desol- desolation, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, but it was the object of desolation that was supposed to be put in the temple. And this uh, was supposed to be it. The officer stopped the motion of it and wrote back to the emperor saying this would cause a terrible thing. The emperor was furious and he sent orders that that officer should be executed or should kill himself and that the temple be put in. But then Caligula was assassinated before uh, that that arrived and they sent another ship to try to get this Kaiseria ahead of time to let the officer know not to kill himself because Caligula was dead. So it didn't quite reach the temple. But the um the uh that was uh, that was the kind of thing that was being referred to. Does that help? Yes, that does help. Um, but it so the statue never actually made it. It the- never made it, uh, but I do believe that Nero wanted to send one of himself over there, but that didn't make it either. But the the other thing too is that there were riots in the the time I be, I believe it was the time of Herod the Great, where they did put a uh, a Roman eagle over the gates of the temple, and that did cause a lot of riots, uh, and a lot of people were killed in that process. Does that help? That helps tremendously. Can I ask you one other question? Sure you can. Okay, thank you. I am trying to uh, understand Protestant dogmas and doctrines versus the Catholic dogmas and doctrines, mm-hmm. because um, is the doc is a dogma higher up than a doctrine, or and how do we? Because I feel like okay. a, a lot of 
We yeah. said it. But, but I feel like for a lot of, I don't know where these Protestant dogmas and doctrines come from. Okay. Well, first of all, in the Protestant world, in much of the Protestant world, dogma is a four-letter word, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, they they tend not to actually it's five letters, but at any rate, you know it's what a I mean. it's a yeah it, it's it, a number of uh, Protestant uh, denominations reject the con- concept of dogma to begin with. In Catholicism, we have uh, dogmas that are uh, of different scales of importance. So, for instance, the uh, and in general, let's put it this way, a doctrine refers to, uh, it's, that's just a word that means a teaching. That's what a doctrine means. It comes from a Latin word, uh, doceo, uh, I teach. So a doctrine is that which I teach. It's a teaching. Whereas a dogma is a category of doctrine within that wider group. So the the wider group is uh, of teaching. And some extremely important teachings, necessary for salvation teachings, are called dogmas, and that they are formally decreed as so or explicitly stated in sacred scripture. The uh, best summary of the most important dogmas is the creed that we say on Sundays. So that gives you a summary of the creeds, especially about the disputes of the first few hundred years of the church, those were disputes about the nature of God, the nature of the Blessed Trinity, the nature of Jesus Christ. These were argued a lot in the early church. And the creed gives you a summary statement of that. Now, those are not the only dogmas. There are other dogmas of the church that have been declared uh, over the years, usually at councils in union with the Pope. So that's where they're usually decreed. So, But not everything... um, is, uh, you know, uh, of the highest level of dogma. Some doctrines are speculation. So, for instance, it was never a dogma to believe in limbo. That was, that was a theological opinion, and it was at a fairly lower level of importance. And if you want to get a good scholarly um, version of that, uh, there is, uh, oh, his first name is Otto. Uh, He wrote the, the Dogmas of the Catholic Church. And as he goes through those dogmas of the Catholic Church, 
um, I think that's the title of his book. Um, he's, he's a German, but the book is in English. You can get it in English. Warburg. Otto Warburg? No. No, no, no it's not Otto, Otto Warburg. Ludwig. Ludwig Ott. Otto. Lu- that's it. Lu- Ludwig Ott. Ott. There you go. Ludwig Ott. I knew I'd get it. This is probably one of the problems with an old brain. Uh, but Ludwig Ott, O-T-T, Dogmas of the Catholic Church. He lays out what the doctrines and dogmas are and explains different levels of uh, importance to them. Uh, so that would be a good source. Does that help? That helps a bunch. Thank you very much, You're and thanks to Ethan. Very welcome. Thanks. We appreciate it, Jamie. Yeah, I I really recommend that people get Ludwig Gott. It is not exciting reading. Um, Insomniacs, listen to me. This is your book. (laughs) (laughs) But it is extremely well done and a great, great summary for someone who has read the Catechism and wants to go to a deeper level. That's what I would recommend. Next up is Diane in Littleton, Colorado, listening on the EWTN app. Diane, you're on with Father Mitch. Hi, Father. Thanks so much. Hi. What can we do? Well, I um, am a faithful Catholic. My granddaughter is nine, and Mm -hmm. she's not being raised. Uh, in the faith, mm-hmm. and my daughter doesn't. Mm-hmm. She practices occasionally, but my granddaughter's little friend, who's nine in her school, her best friend is Mormon, mm-hmm. and the subject came up as are Mormons Christian? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure. I it made me go do more research, but before that, I wasn't sure how to answer to my little granddaughter. Yeah, yeah, the and, difference. And, yeah, there are a couple of things here. Um, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of ways where to start. But with a nine-year-old little girl, um, you, you you know need to urge her to charity toward her friend um, because two nine-year-olds uh, are not uh, ought not to be. Uh, they're probably not prepared either one of them to really dispute the differences. We do not recognize the uh, Latter-day Saints as a Christian denomination because they, you know, and this is something that has changed a lot over the years, but from the work, the study I've done, they believe that everybody becomes a god. They, one of the principles that Joseph Smith had taught his disciples is uh, as uh, you are now, God once was. As God is now, you will become. So God became God, and we can become gods. That's not Christian teaching that you uh, cannot become a god. God is uncreated. And there's a funny thing here, because they believe that God the Father came from another planet where he was a god there, but he was born on a planet different from that. 
And then he went to the planet Kolob, where Jesus and his brother Satan used to live. And, you know, I won't go into all the details, but because it's complicated. But while God develops into God from being a man, matter, the, the physical universe, is eternal. So that, that's not our doctrine at all. God created the universe, but that's, that's the reality. It's EWTN's Open Line Wednesday with Father Mitch Pacqua. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You know, in our uh, human lived experience, 25 years with something is a pretty good milestone. And uh, we want to congratulate our good friends at Spirit Catholic Radio, celebrating 25 years as an EWTN affiliate. Uh, They're almost from the beginning. Uh, Big hats off to Jim Carroll and his whole team there at Spirit Catholic Radio from us here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. George is watching us on YouTube, Father Mitch, and she says she's a hairstylist and she has a few clients, male and female, that are gay. And uh, can she still serve the Lord Jesus Oh, she says, I still serve our Lord Jesus in them. Is this God's will to know them? Yeah. I mean, why? You know, there's no reason not to be friendly and kind, and uh, as well as to do a very nice job. This is, if they pay you to do whatever you do with their hair, um, you know, there's no probably you have a moral obligation in justice to do a very good job for everybody equally you know to do your best because they pay you to do your best and you know cherishing them and being friends with them is definitely not a bad thing or wrong thing you you and you know, you can see if this turns into uh, a friendship where you can go into another level if the Lord opens up that door. Otherwise, you show love and charity and kindness just like you would with anybody. This is a good thing. I don't think that Mother Teresa in the alleys of Calcutta, if she came upon somebody in need and found out that they were same-sex attracted. I don't think she turned her back on them. (laughs) No, of course not. And see, most of the people she dealt with were not Christian. Right. That was no barrier to her. She treated them with the highest respect. And when she died, all of India treated her with highest respect. Uh, Medicus is also watching on YouTube and wants to know how he can quickly delineate the differences between Catholic and Protestant conceptions of worship for his Protestant friends. Um, you know, I first of all, it would depend on what kind of Protestant worship you're talking about, because that is not of one type. And so you have to find out, well, what do you do in your worship? Because there's so there, there are tens of thousands of various churches and denominations, so find out what they mean by their worship, and enter into that dialogue. And then, as far as our worship goes, 
Uh, it is uh, a lot of things I'm sure are shared. For instance, praise and thanksgiving and petition. These are held in common by most Christians. Not all, but by most Christians. We praise God. We adore him. We thank him. We ask him. But then there is this other element. We always include repentance. Some Protestant churches do. Some do not. Uh, We do it at every Mass. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Um, And because we want to have our sins forgiven. Secondly, and this is where for most, the the vast majority, 99% of Protestants would disagree with this part of our worship. The central action of the Mass is the offering of bread and wine so that at the consecration by the words of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit and the words and actions spoken by the priest, it becomes the body and blood of Christ, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Christ is present not only spiritually, that we share that with them, but sacramentally as this outward sign that Christ instituted and we are called to receive him. That is what's key there. Mary is a first-time caller in Germantown, Maryland, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Mary, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Mitch. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, My question is, I understand at the end of time, when we have the general judgment, that we will know the outcome for every soul. Mm -hmm. And my question is, if one soul is destined for heaven, but someone that they really love, is destined for hell, how can the person going to heaven be happy and content and at peace, knowing that their loved one Mm -hmm. is not with them? I know. This is where, first of all, in heaven, the focus is not on our fellow human beings. The focus in heaven is on communion with God, our relationship with our Lord. And the attention that we give to the infinite God in heaven is going to be overwhelming. And that the choices of sin that lead to somebody being condemned in hell will not have the power to stifle the joy of being with God. So let's go back to Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She, you know, saw a lot of the ugliest parts of India. She wasn't a tourist. She saw the back alleys and oftentimes, you know, human degradation of people thrown in garbage and uh, living in garbage and off of garbage and uh, terrible, terrible sights of people, you know, uh, sick with leprosy and so on. That did not deny the beauty of the Himalaya or Himalaya Mountains, that the Himalaya Mountains still remain this incredibly beautiful scene despite this ugliness that were in the streets of Calcutta. 
And this will be the case for the redeemed, that the, the, the free choice of sinners to cut themselves off from God will, uh, as much as you may love them, I mean, God loves them infinitely more than you and I ever could. Because the last thing that God wants is for them to go to heaven. As St. Paul teaches, God wills that all men be saved. But if they choose to live out their freedom that uh, and commit sin and separate themselves from God, that will not negate the beauty and truth of heaven. And that that focus on infinite beauty and truth will be there to sustain us. Does that help? Oh, yes. Your analogy is beautiful, Father. Thank you. You're welcome. We head next to the Queen City. Michael is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Michael, you're on with Father Mitch. Hello, Father Mitch. Hi, what's Uh, up? You know me, I'm I'm the arborist with a mission out here in Cincinnati, and my goal is to get to the root of the problem <laughs> of, of sustainability. But I, I related to faith sustainability mm-hmm. using Luke chapter 8 and the parable of the sower in the soil. But with that being said, um, I've really had an amazing passion for Native Americans being honored. Mm-hmm. And my best friend, who was Navajo, he died last year. He worked with me for five years. And he said, Mike, the five years I worked with you and and uh, tree restoration or tree sustainability was so healing. I mean, he grew up as a gang leader in South Los Angeles and was mm-hmm. Father um, uh, Greg Boyle is one of his first uh, gang leaders of you know uh, disciples from you know Homeboy Industries. But anyway, mm-hmm. my question is, um, I'm trying to honor the legacy of the Shawnee here in Cincinnati, and mm-hmm. I've asked uh, the local auxiliary bishop. He looked at the uh, one of the monuments we have in Coring Township, which is the oldest and largest township, and I just said, Bishop, uh, I, I feel like this thing says that might makes right, and it's not according to God's Spirit. You know, and this is, of course, prior to Catholic immigration. I said, have we ever really tried to honor God's protocol with Native people to say, you know, and, and I think Pope Francis tries to allude to this. He calls it, we need to strive for a true human ecology. And I, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to put it together. How do I... Um, and, and I found people of Shawnee and Blackfoot and Cherokee heritage here in my own neighborhood, but they'll even say to me, well, we love Jesus, but we just don't do white man's religion. You know? mm-hmm. And I'm saying, how do I invite these people to realize... I, I mean, they, they come from a more Protestant uh, background with the Sola Scriptura, but... I sure. just I'm trying to uh, really glean in the authority of the church apostolically. What right. how we honor the people? Yeah, a couple things. Um, I would urge you to. Uh, oh, I, I think I can find it in my um, notes. Back in 1537, uh, Pope Paul III had um, made a decree about the uh, Native Americans and African Ameri- uh, and Africans in regard to slavery. 
And in that, he, uh, let me just see if I can find the exact title of that. Um, and Sublimus Deus. Sublimus Deus. Um, see, I don't have any internet. I've got, I've got a copy of it, uh, but I don't have it. Uh, I don't have the internet here. Uh, take a look at that. Because his are uh, in a hundred years prior to that, Pope Eugene, the uh, had uh, uh, the Eugene the Fourth, had already decreed to the Portuguese nation that stealing the land and enslaving the ha- inhabitants of the Canary Islands and the Azores was a mortal sin and was automatic excommunication. They were not allowed to do that. And he said it's because, look, these are, these are already Christians, and you can't do that. But Pope Paul III took it a further step and said that peoples of the Americas and of Africa— are human beings with free will and intellect. And on that basis of their human nature, you may not steal their land or enslave them. Now, that's 1537. Uh, but, but earlier than that, in 1436, Eugene IV had said this. Uh, something uh, uh, moving toward that clarification. And so there is teaching along this line. Now, here's the problem. People with technology, especially guns and other technology, knew that they could take this land and human freedom, and they did. This is a human problem. Uh, a, a problem of human sin to take advantage of people. And this was um, something that continued on wherever advanced peoples met folks at an earlier stage of cultural and technological development. This is the sad history of humanity. And, you know, this is why the church even came up with um, just war theories. The, the just war theory says that you may not take somebody's land or start a war with them unless they started with you first. You may not be an aggressor. You can defend yourself, but you may not be an aggressor. That goes back to the 4th century A.D. So we have that teaching. The difficulty is it was, um, you know, it's not paid attention to. And this continues on uh, with uh, human history uh, even till today. So it's there, but people don't listen. That's what we call sin. Does that help you, Michael? Well, I wanted to know, uh, is there like a projection for healing the land, if you want to call it that, or, or redemption of inviting those with that are living in our generation to be able to 
be honored and to kind of redeem, if you will, yeah. what the enemy. In, in terms of that, uh, I that would be something that has to be done at local levels. Uh, that's where local initiative needs to come along. So, for instance, uh, I, the, the Bishop of Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there, remember, Oklahoma was the destination for those nations that were displaced from the southeast by Andrew Jackson. And, you know, that that there still are large tribal areas in um, uh, Oklahoma. And the bishop wanted to do something of reconciliation. He was, and we were dis- discussing it. What I suggested as one way to start is to bring relics of St. Kateri, Tecuitha, and St. Um, Juan Diego, as well as, uh, and I, I think uh, to consider uh, taking the, uh, doing some programs about black elk. Black elk, the uh, Lakota Sioux uh, uh, chief, was, is being proposed for beatification. His cause is underway right now. Um, to get that as well as, you know, some of the North American martyrs and the Franciscan martyrs of Georgia and elsewhere. And to, uh, as, and a, 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 I know one place where this is going on is in North Florida, where Native Americans and Spaniards who were martyred by the British and the Huguenots uh, uh, in order to take Florida from the Spanish and to remove the Catholic influence, there's a shrine to those martyrs. And to use that combination as a way to seek heavenly reconciliation for the Native American saints and martyrs, as well as the Europeans who came here that are saints and martyrs, and to see as we present them together a way of reconciliation for all of us. That would be my suggestion. Tonight you've got Deacon Omar Gutierrez joining you on the program. What are you guys going to talk about? We're going to talk about how uh, uh, his institute helps Catholic school teachers deal with presenting their Catholic identity and the Catholic identity and program of the Catholic schools. Uh, it's not always been the case. Um, and uh, this is an important topic as many of the uh, public schools are experiencing a lot of problems, if not sometimes uh, serious crises of what they're teaching. Uh, and to have the schools become more Catholic is the goal of what he wants to, to, to teach new teachers. That's EWTN Live tonight with Father Mitch, 8 Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Next stop is the great state of Minnesota. Diane is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Diane, you're on with Father Mitch. Hi, Father Mitch. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> I'm Wonderful. fine. 
What um, can we do for you? Well, last last July, July of last year, I received um, a completed my my annulment that I was undergoing was completed favorably, mm-hmm. and I was all excited about uh, joining the church. And uh, I went uh, to see my pastor, and uh, it turns out that in the beginning, uh, they never asked the question about my husband being previously married. And of course, he, you know, I said he was. This was a, this was another priest who had interviewed me the first I time. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, so my current priest told me that my husband must undergo an annulment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband does not care to join the Catholic Church, but he has agreed to undergo the process for my sake, which sure. is really awesome. Sure, that, that um, is. That is. And, and so so I'm facing, you know, another possibly 18 months of waiting, mm-hmm. and I've already been coming to this church for a good three years now. Mm-hmm. And so it's really upsetting me that I, I still cannot make my first confession and not receive the Eucharist, right. not any of those things. My question is, if I were to perish tomorrow, what would become of me? That, first of all, uh, you are are considered a catechumen, and you you would be if you died. uh, We because this that kind of process of waiting for baptism uh, was not unusual in the early church, and. The people who died, be, say, if they uh, passed away before they could be baptized, they were considered to have baptism of desire. There, there, a number of them were even included among the list of the martyrs because some of them were captured and martyred and became saints, even though they had not been formally baptized, but they had the baptism of desire. And so uh, that was, uh, in fact, there, there are times when uh, some of the Roman soldiers saw the bravery of the Christian martyrs going to the beasts, and they would remove their armor and join them. Now, they hadn't been baptized, but they said, those people are for real. And so they, uh, even though they had been baptized, they were considered martyrs for the faith and part of the church by virtue of what we call baptism of desire. So that's what we do. Does that help? Yes, that that gives me hope. (laughs) Well, yes, yes, and that's what my Jesus wants you to have, lots of hope. Lorraine is in Chicago, Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. Lorraine, you're on with Father Mitch. Hello, Father. Hi, what can we do for you? (laughs) Okay, my daughter is saying, all churches believe they receive from Jesus in uh-huh. the document. Right. I said, no, they don't. That's right. And she don't believe me. <laughs> yeah, so I no. I'm calling and see, uh, hear you tonight on the TV when you come on, when you come on at 9. Uh-huh. I said, because, no, it's just, you know, our church and Eastern church, you know, those churches, but not Baptists and Protestants oh. and these other churches, they don't believe in it. I said, yes. You do. I said, no, you, I mean, they don't, they don't, they do not become Jesus. That Ask, what you, what I would ask you to, ask your daughters to do, uh, is go to any Baptist minister or minister 
of, uh, you know, uh, you know, the local churches. Do you believe that your Lord's Supper is the body, blood, and soul and divinity of Jesus Christ? Do you uh, do you believe that this really is the body and blood of Christ? Another way to do it, and this depends on uh, the 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 church, um, but in you know, when there is leftover communion at the end of a service, ask them, well, what do you do with the leftover communion? Uh, there was one priest in uh, Tennessee who uh, <laughs> used to really love going to— he had made good friends with the local minister and his wife, and they would invite him. They knew he was alone in this small town. They uh, invited him over for Sunday supper, and dessert was frequently bread pudding, he found out later that it was made from the leftover Eucharist. They consumed it. They didn't throw it away or anything. They knew that would not be right. But they made a bread pudding out of it. That wouldn't be something we would ever do. You know, because, uh, and it, that's a way to understand how they think, that at least in that particular church. Now, not all Protestant churches would do that by any means. But, in that case, they, they had no problem with it. In the Anglican Church, they are not allowed to believe. I think it's Article 39 in the 39 Articles of Faith. Reject the Catholic teaching on transubstantiation. They specifically say no to that. So that would be what I think. Does that help? Yes, yes. Well, Lorraine, it's great to have you. My mother was a Lorraine from Chicago, just like you. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Sure. Lord, bless you all and keep you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Mitch Paqua, producer Charles Beery, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're back at it tomorrow with Dominican Father Brian Milady on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>